Well, again, thank you, and I'm very thankful as well for Brother Sai's gracious and uh, very warm invitation and introduction. Uh, somewhere, I think, right about now, I have a fifth grade Sunday school teacher who's getting a good laugh out of seeing me stand right here. I remember her saying, someday God's going to make me study the Bible, even though I wasn't willing to do it in her class. Well, she got her way, and here I am. And you may know, as I was introduced by Brother Sai, I'm not a frequent visitor to a Baptist church, at least not on Sunday mornings. It hasn't been the, the way God has asked me to participate in worship, and so be it for the time being. But um, my family is beginning to get an introduction to the Baptist church and to the Baptist way of life. We were visiting a recent, uh, recently we were visiting a student from the class that I'm teaching on Sunday night who happens to be in the hospital and as we went up to visit him, he was in the North Baptist Hospital off Stone Oak, I guess. And as we're approaching, my son looks up at the building and he says, Daddy, they have a hospital just for Baptists. And I said, well, you know, son, those, those Baptists are, are everywhere. And I said, thank goodness you're not a Methodist because who knows what they do to you in this place. And he said, well, they certainly have a hospital for Methodists, don't they? I said, absolutely, they do. You're right, son, they do. No, he, he was impressed. And as Brother Sian mentioned, as I stood up here, we are teaching Revelation on Sunday nights. And that's been going on now, and I guess now into its 23rd week, and I can certainly sense the excitement in the class. I, I fear, though, that it's merely just the students anxious to find out what will come first, the end of the class or Christ's second coming itself. I think uh, second coming is winning two to one right now. I'll find out. But truly, I'm honored to answer your call here to teach on Wednesdays. And we're going to be here for seven weeks, seven teaching weeks, an eighth week mixed into just to give you a break. Hopefully you'll come back. And on this night, as we go through the book and study God's sovereignty, I want you to know that I'm humbled by the trust you've placed in me. And I'm also mindful of the awesome responsibility it is for anyone who would bring you the word of God. And I intend to take that responsibility seriously. And as we begin this series series I've called Thy Will Be Done on the Sovereignty of God. I don't think it's good for me to go into the heart of the lesson today if I don't give you some appreciation for why I think we need to study this topic. And in fact, I think you need to understand why this topic is so important to our time. I'll put it simply. The biblical view of God and of His sovereignty is under assault. You know, as I have occasion to watch Christian teaching on television or I hear it on radio, if you go look at the bookstore and check out what's popular on the Christian bookshelves these days, well, I don't know about you, but frankly, I'm astonished. And I know you've seen these things because they're very popular. From every channel, from every book cover that I look at these days, I see teaching that is transforming, if it were possible, the God of the universe. The God that created all we know, the God of all time, into a genie in a bottle. And it's a shame, but it seems so many ministries and books want to teach about a God, a God that I've never known, a God I don't know, a God who promises to cure me of every ailment I might ever have, a God that promises to make me rich, a God that Promises I'll never suffer any trials. A God who's prepared to clear every last obstacle out of my way, anything standing in the way of my personal success and enrichment. 
my personal happiness. And yet, what's so interesting is when you read these books or when you listen to these teachers, this same God, this same God that's going to give me all those wonderful things is powerless to do any of it unless I release that power. Unless I enable this God to do what he already wishes to do. Release his power? What kind of God needs my help to do something he already wants to do for me? Not the God I know. Now, some of these teachings that I've read and heard, I know you've heard. I don't need to name names. I don't think that's appropriate. I don't think that's necessary. What we're concerned with is not the people. We're concerned with the teaching. Some of the teachings that I've read recently include a book that was popular for a time, and it it argued that we should pray some obscure prayer out of the Old Testament repeatedly, turning it basically into a chant. And if we did that, we would be guaranteed to release God's blessing upon us. Let me quote you from the beginning passages or beginning chapters of that book. Quote, dear reader, I want to teach you how to pray a daring prayer that God always answers. It is brief, only one sentence with four parts and tucked away in the Bible. But I believe it contains the key to a life of extraordinary favor with God. Do those words concern you? They should. Do you know what I see when I read my Bible? What will give me extraordinary favor with God? To love him and obey him above all else without regard for my own personal desires. To devote myself in total to a life of obedience by faith. That's what I'm told in Scripture will lead to favor with God. It's as if these men want to turn him into a genie. Now, to be fair, I know many of these books have been used by God to do good things in the lives of those who've read them. And I don't want to discount the good that may come from these books, despite their errors. But the fact that God may use something like this to turn to good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose does not excuse inappropriate and unbiblical teaching, and nor should we. Other popular teachings of the day are abundant. I saw recently on television a well-known preacher declaring that if we tithe regularly, God would be obligated to repay our tithes seven times over. But, of course, he won't give until we do. It's as if our faith is nothing more than some cosmic, multi-level marketing plan. Now, if I'm making anyone uncomfortable, maybe that's good. Another popular perspective says we have to have the right frame of mind. This is one that I'm particularly concerned with because it says we need a better view of self in order to overcome the problems of our world. The current best-selling book on this theme says this, quote, The secret for how Christians are to have a successful and prosperous life, the key are doing seven steps, enlarge your vision, develop a healthy self-image, discover the power of your thoughts and words, let go of the past, find strength through adversity, live to give, and choose to be happy. Okay. You know what's wrong with these books? These books would have us believe that our God is a God who is capable, in fact, even obligated, to provide all we could possibly want, all we could possibly imagine, and yet he's powerless to do any of it unless we enable him. What a strange God that is. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the church, I believe, is suffering from a rising tide of this kind of teaching. And its worst forms, this teaching distorts the words of the Bible for dishonest gain. And at the very least, it's misguided and potentially hurtful. 
And you're going to know these teachings when you see them because they're often saturated with catchphrases, with words that sound appealing, with sensible sounding ideas. And then when you compare them against the light of Scripture, they fall apart. For example, this one I just read about needing to have good self-image in order to achieve what you want in life. Sounds sensible, right? We all want a good self-image. But would our problems truly vanish if we just cultivated a better self-esteem? Do we really need more self-esteem in this world? I wonder what the Apostle Paul would say. In Philippians 2.3, he says this, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the Apostle Paul commended the Philippian church to imitate Christ in his humility and in his willingness to sacrifice his position of honor out of obedience to the Father. But on the other hand, we're expected to get all that we might desire. You know, if Christ were alive on earth today, no doubt these same teachers might blame his miserable circumstances on his obviously poor self-esteem and the fact that he didn't choose to be happy. You know, self-esteem, that's a $20 word for a very old concept. We call it pride. The last thing this lost and dying world needs is more pride. In fact, What we need to do is deny ourselves and take up our cross. The cross of obedience to the Father. All right. At the root of all this false teaching is a distorted view of who God is and what he desires and what he promised to those who love him. In fact, it's a distorted view of what it means that God is God and we're not. And when you get that straight, the teachings fall apart. And you know, if we want to be honest with ourselves for just a moment, there's something even more troubling than simply the fact that this false teaching exists by itself. What should bother us even more is the fact that these teachers have such huge audiences for their teaching. You know, these men and women often find themselves preaching to tens of thousands of people who adore their message. Friends, may I suggest that the shame rests with us? Because to attract such a devoted following, those teachers require an audience that is largely ignorant of the truths of Scripture. George Barna conducted a survey survey recently of self-proclaimed evangelical Christians. And in that survey, here's what he found. In the last four years, there's been a rise in the proportion of adults who read the Bible. Great. That sounds good. The only problem is those same people spend seven times as much of their time on entertainment as they do on spiritual activity. And even worse than that, of that same group, two-thirds say they know all the basic teachings of the Christian faith, and yet that same group, two-thirds reject the existence of Satan, three-quarters, or three-fifths rather, reject the existence of the Holy Spirit, and a half believe that Jesus sinned. 
Among adults who are lay leaders in their church, more than 9 out of 10 prioritize their faith within their life goals. The only problem is that they ranked it 6th among 21 life goals. A minority of born-again adults, 44%, and an even smaller proportion of born-again teenagers, 9%, are certain of the existence of absolute moral truth. Less than half believe there's absolute moral truth and they're born-again Christian, they say. And half of all unchurched and non-Christian adults admit that they are seeking meaning and purpose in their lives. But in that survey, among born-again adults, none of the individuals interviewed said that the single most important goal in their life is to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ. I think these things should concern us. And we, the teachers, the pastors, and the lay leadership combined, we have the collective responsibility to provide instruction that our fellowships obviously need. To be mindful that they need more than feel-good pablum, porridge for the mind, milk. That's good for the Christian on day one, and maybe on day ten, and maybe on day 100. But if you've been a Christian more than a year, or you know a brother or sister in the Lord who's been a Christian more than a year, and they're not seeking the meat of the Word, then they are the ones who will hear this bad teaching and believe it. And fall prey to it. And if we're confused on the truth, then what would, we, what would we expect from them? You know, as the Apostle Paul was approaching the end of his life and he recognized that the end of his ministry was drawing near, he wrote a letter to a protege, to a man named Timothy. And here's what he said in 2 Timothy 4.1. He said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge, the living, to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, he tells Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And then he says why that's so important. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. When you hear desires, what do you think? You know what desires are? I want to be rich. I want to be powerful. I don't want to have any trials or temptations in my life. I want everything that I can see and touch and feel and think is good. And I want a teacher who tells me I can get it. And that there's a God in heaven willing to do it if I only would ask for it. Let me ask you, parents in this room, if you have a son or daughter who comes to you and says, Daddy, I want this, I want that, I want everything in the world, are you a good parent or a bad parent if you give them exactly everything they want? Anyone who's ever raised a child knows the answer to that question. So why is it the Father in Heaven, who knows so much more about being a good father than we could ever know, is going to give us everything we could possibly want? Is that a good father or a bad father? And yet those same teachers tell us that our Father in Heaven is just waiting to pour out every single blessing our mind can imagine. Is that the Father you know? That's not the Father I know. And so this series, brothers and sisters, is designed to contend with what I believe, sadly, is the time Paul warned about. I believe we're in this time. I believe we're in the time when men and women want to have their ears tickled. I believe we're in the time when men and women are seeking teachers for themselves, for their own desires. And although we're not in control of the times, we're not in control of the seasons, we can stand against this tide that threatens to sweep so many of our brothers and sisters out to sea in confusion and despair. And our weapon in this fight is the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. And so we're going to counter the unbiblical teaching that's out there on this issue of 
God's sovereignty by presenting the biblical view over these next seven weeks. Each week in the series is designed to take a particular aspect of God's work in his creation and through the lives of his people. And look at what the Bible has to say about God's sovereignty in that area. First, the work of prayer, healing, provision, evangelism, world events, even in the word itself. You see it in your schedule before you. And in each week, we're going to examine passages of Scripture that illuminate on that issue and teach us exactly what God would say on it. Now, meanwhile, I'm sure that we all here would take great comfort in the fact that we aren't the kind of Christians to fall tempted to that kind of teaching, right? None of us in here, because we walk with the Lord, because we know his love and his lordship, and because we know the incomparable depths of his wisdom, all of that being what it is in our walk, we're not the kind of people who are going to turn around in a moment and try to treat God as our own personal attendant, right? I mean, nobody in here has ever taken to thinking of God as simply a genie in a bottle that we can manipulate to our own desires. I mean, we've never done that. Or could we? Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, and let's look at the passage for today. I know many of you are familiar with this passage. It's been taught many times, I'm sure. Perhaps you'll see something different today that touches on our topic. As you go into the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, in the previous chapter, we've learned that Jesus now has begun the early stages of his ministry on earth. He's been collecting to himself disciples. And at this point in his ministry, he's already collected two or three disciples and he has a small gathering with him. And as he's with his mother in the region of Galilee in a town named Cana, he is invited to a wedding. Let's read as we begin in chapter 2, verse 1, the circumstances. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman... What does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to his servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it out to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Well, as I said, this is a familiar passage. We've no doubt heard it before. As we begin, we hear Christ having begun his ministry in the region of Galilee. One of the early disciples was a man named Nathaniel. Nathaniel, you'll find out later in the same gospel, actually was from the region of Cana. So it's possible that it was actually through Nathan, or through Nathaniel rather, that Jesus had this invitation. Perhaps it was Mary. Perhaps Mary was related. It could also just be that because it's a small town, everyone went to the wedding. That was actually quite common in those days. And make no mistake, weddings in the Jewish tradition, they were a big deal. A wedding on a Jewish family would last many days, as many as seven. And most anyone who could possibly be invited would be invited. In fact, you could think of it, I guess, as something like 
Nyosa, only with less pushing and shoving. It was a sort of a big holiday. And it's also important to remember that the host of this affair, typically the groom's parents, they had a lot riding on this. This was a big deal. It was probably one of the highlights of their life in this little town. And if this party went badly, if it didn't go as planned, if the guests weren't happy, it was a tremendous social disgrace. In fact, it could follow that family and that couple their entire lives as long as they lived in that little community. They may never be forgiven. It also had uh, financial implications. You know how you bring guests uh, or the guests bring uh, gifts to a wedding? Well, that was the case in this day as well. But there was a catch. If the guests to this wedding had any dissatisfaction with the wedding, they were free to take their gift back or at least a portion of it. And remember, the gifts in that day weren't wrapped up from Macy's or Dillard's. We're talking about sheep. We're talking about grain. We're talking about silver and gold, things that can be easily made of value and therefore could be removed in part or in total if the guests weren't pleased. So the groom's father had a lot riding on the line with this wedding feast. And as it appears here, and Jesus having been invited, Mary having been invited, Uh, Mary must play some role in relationship to those giving the feast because she's obviously looking out for the host, or so it seems. You know, I would say, just as an aside, it's a wise couple who would invite Jesus to their wedding, then and now. And so at some point in this affair, it is apparent that Mary takes note that this wine supply is running out. This is a horribly embarrassing thing, terribly embarrassing. In fact, a Jewish wedding without wine would be like Oktoberfest without beer. It would be, well, it would be like a Baptist church running out of committees, I'm told. I promised my wife I wouldn't do that one, but I couldn't resist, Brother Sly. And at this point in the story, Mary does something very curious. Mary does something very odd, in fact. If you look at the text... She looks over at Jesus and she says to him, they're running out of wine. That's a curious thing to say, isn't it? I mean, it's not Jesus who's the groom. Why does Mary turn to Jesus and tell him that they're running out of wine? You think he's just interested? Maybe he had a bottle in his hand and he was getting ready to have a second and she's just giving him a heads up. It's almost gone. You better get another one while you still can. No. Why would she turn to Jesus and even assume he's interested? What did she expect Jesus to say? Or why did she care? Why would she think he would? You know, this is one of those moments, if you're a man and you have a wife, you know these moments. Those moments when your wife asks you a question and you have to think very carefully about what kind of answer you're going to give. Kind of like the question, honey, does this dress make me look fat? You know, there's only one right answer to that question. And if you don't know it, you'll know it after the first time. And there's really only one right answer to what Mary has said. And Jesus gives her that answer. He says in really a mild rebuke. It's a respectful statement, but still a rebuke nonetheless. He says, woman, what does this have to do with us? Now, first thing that might catch your mind is this phrase, woman. And understand, in that culture, that was not a disrespectful term. It wasn't perhaps the most gentle and loving term he could have used. So in that, it contains part of the rebuke, but it wasn't disrespectful. It was common to use a word to call a lady or a female woman. That would have been normal. And so it's not that part of the statement that should concern you. It's the rest of it. He says plainly, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. 
What are we to make of that odd reply? Well, first, we know how the story ends. We know that Christ honors his mother's request. And he turns the water into wine. And by the way, not just any water. Those pots, they're for ceremonial cleansing. They're where you wash your hands. This isn't water supply to drink. This is water for washing. And, of course, it's not just any wine, but the best wine. A true miracle. But what we need to really pay careful attention to is not the fact that he obeyed so much, but rather the fact that he responded in the way he did. It's not a story so much between a mother and her son, though it is that. It is more a story between the Lord of all creation and a needy sinner. Because that's the relationship that's in view at the beginning of this story. Mary, you remember, is just a normal Jewish mother. And she's a normal Jewish mother with a son that she loves and wants to see honored. And she has needs and she has desires, just like any mother. And those desires in this moment include wanting to make sure this party goes well. Wanting to make sure there's plenty of wine. And she happens to have a son who she knows can address this need. You know, I happen to have a similar experience. I have parents who, though they don't think of me as the second coming, they certainly see me as someone who can be helpful at times. And I visit them from time to time. And when I typically visit them with my family, this is how it goes. I'll I'll show up after not having been there, let's say, three months. And they live out of town. And I'll have my wife, my kids. My wife will go in. They'll greet her. They'll hug her, kiss her. Hello, sweetie. Hello, honey. Come on in. Sit down. Can I get you something to drink? My children come in. Oh, dear children, come on in. We have a present for you. Come on in. And then I show up. Oh, hello, Stephen. You know, the toilet's backed up again. Would you mind going in there and taking care of that? And, of course, I'll go in and, Dad, this is terrible. How long has this been going on? Oh, just since the last time you were here, actually. We haven't got around to fixing it. And that's what sons do. And that's what a respectful son is willing to do. But Mary's request was a little more dramatic than clearing up a backed up toilet. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, she goes to her son and she says they're out of wine. What did she expect? He was going to make wine out of water? I don't know that she had that idea, but she certainly knew he was going to produce it from somewhere, didn't she? I mean, what's her motivation for going to her son and saying they're running out of wine, except that she thought he could do something about it? Which tells us something interesting right off the top. It tells us that she must have known Jesus was capable of doing the very thing he did. Doesn't that get you thinking? How does she know that? I sometimes wonder if maybe as a little boy in the house, he was busy turning water into grape juice. And, you know, she comes along and goes, oh, my goodness, look what this little child can do. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be that it happened that way. Maybe she just knows because she knows who this man is from what the angel told her before she even gave birth. But in any event, she's confident that Jesus can meet her need and can turn water into wine. And whether she had seen miracles or not before, the story goes on to say this was Jesus' first public display of his ministry. That doesn't necessarily imply it was his first display in private to his mother in whatever form. But Jesus knew, or Mary rather knew, Jesus was the Messiah, and she must have believed he could do something to fix this problem, whatever he was going to do. Okay, so what does Jesus say to her in response? He says, woman, what does this have to do with us? My time has not yet come. Jesus calls out her false motives. Jesus turns to his mother and says, the problem here doesn't concern us. And yet you've made it or are attempting to make it my problem. And then he says, my time has not come. 
In other words, his time to reveal himself through his public ministry in the full form, in his full glory, has not yet arrived. And you and I both know that through the Gospels, Christ spent many times in his early part of his ministry, he spent time and effort trying to conceal his identity until the proper time so that his ministry could go to fruition according to God's plan. And here's Mary essentially trying to expose her son for who he is at this early point in his ministry. I often wonder if Mary's motive wasn't even a little deeper than simply trying to satisfy the need for wine. I wonder if, like many mothers, she wasn't trying to manipulate her son a little bit, maybe into revealing himself sooner than he wanted to, because, like any mother, she wanted her son to be seen for who he really was. I'm not going to suggest here that uh, Jewish mothers, or any mother for that matter, are manipulative. No, no, I wouldn't want to suggest that at all. Mothers are never manipulative, but... I think Mary's response is the response that matters in this story. Look what she says next. She says nothing to Christ. In fact, look at all that she says. She never asks a question at all. She never makes a request. But she knows what she's going to get. She's a pro. She turns to the servants and she says, whatever he tells you to do, just go do it. Because she wants it done. And she won't take no for an answer. And as we saw, Christ honored his mother. And he turned her misplaced motives to good for the sake of God's glory. But in the way he responded to her, he made clear the mistake of her thinking. The error in her motives. But we'd never be, we could never be Mary, right? I mean, we're, we would never dare in our own petitions before our Lord to simply put before him selfish desires that are not of truly his will. And we're not that callous, we're not that cavalier with our relationship with the Lord, are we? You know, I'm not suggesting we don't bring our needs before the Lord. We know from Scripture that we're to bring our needs before the Lord. But James 4, verse 2 says this, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask but do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So while we are to bring things before the Lord, and we should, if we bring them with wrong motives, we will not receive. Well, well, that's important to know. Then what are the right motives? Out of Scripture, what would be our right motive? Thy will be done. Thy will be done. The motives that we should bring into prayer as we seek God and particularly seek His blessings is that His will be done and that our will would understand His and we would receive it gladly. This series, as we continue in the week to come, the weeks to come, is not designed to answer every question you might have on the sovereignty of God. I don't know that I could do that if I tried. What the series is designed to do is to return us to the biblical view of who God is and who we are in relationship to God. And that if we truly understand His Word and all it has to say about how God works in this world, we'll understand better our responsibility to Him and our role in the work He has for us in this world. But when that gets off, when our understanding of God's sovereignty loses the biblical-centered focus that it's supposed to have, then we're tempted to think that I can manipulate God. I can do certain things, say certain things, pray certain ways, approach life in a certain way, and if I do those things, I please Him, and then I release all this favor. That's a genie, not a God. That's not the God of the Bible. On the other hand, He is our Father, and He desires to give us good things. And if you as a father were to give your son good things, how much more will our Heavenly Father give you good things? But it will be according to His will. You know, what I want, 
I want to win the lottery. You know why I want to win the lottery? Because if I win the lottery, I can stop working full time. Brother Sy calls me a bivocational pastor. First time I heard that term, I, I thought to myself, I don't know Spanish. <laughs> then my wife explained it to me. I said, honey, what does bivocational pastor mean? She says a pastor in denial. I thought, well, if I win the lottery, well, I don't have to go to work every day. I can do all that I do for the Lord in my free time. I can even spend the money I have on things for the ministry. I could be so much more effective. God, if you would just bless me with the lottery, think of all the good I could do with it. But what God knows better is the kind of man I'd be with a lot of money. I don't think I'd be a man for the Lord. I'd be a man for myself. Because the very desire to have all that money is a selfish desire. Similarly, when we hear these teachers who preach how God will answer our prayer if we only say the right words, do the right thing, think the right thoughts, then it allows self to be in control, not God. It allows our flesh to control our desires and not God. And he will not receive glory if he were to answer those prayers. And so he will not answer those prayers because he does all things to his glory. And we should look to give him glory in all we do. I thank you for your attention. I hope that in the weeks to come you'll find all the other reasons to be here as well and to hear what God may bring through his word. I'll end in prayer and then I'll invite up Donnie to bring the next portion of the program tonight. Let's give the Lord thanks for the word. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet. It guides us. It is the very breath in our bodies. It gives us life. It is the reason, Father, that we could know you by faith. Father, it is the thing that will help us discern good from evil. I pray, Father, in the weeks to come as we go forward in this study that you would be with those who would attend and with myself as I teach. That all we say, Father, would be according to your will and to your glory. That though the words, Father, at times may challenge us, may give us pause, may cause us to reconsider what we may think. Father, change is good for those who would accommodate and accumulate teachers of their own kind or people, Father, who do not want to be challenged, people who do not want to know the truth, people who will only listen to what they already believe. But we are not those people, Father. We want to believe what is true, even if it is not what we think. And we ask, Lord, that your truth would abound. We thank you, Lord, for all your grace and mercy and love and for this opportunity. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.